Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Every time you've ever done something in your life, it's never been a case of, I did it, I did it with complication, or I didn't do it, right? It's been like... You know, let's say that I'm trying to persuade someone, you know, there was that that one sentence that I said that really resonated with them, but then I tried a different tactic and suddenly they were like, oh, shut the hell up, and I, I lost my footing. And when, when I think about how you describe the things that are happening after someone rolls that die, like, the mechanics never really seem to map with that. Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast, the show that calls on the champions and new contenders of the tabletop RPG arena. My name is Jeremy Gage, and I am learning about tabletop game design and publishing. If you are a budding game designer or a veteran looking for fresh musings, stay tuned as we learn about the inspirations, processes, and philosophies of professionals in the industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. My name is Jeremy Gage, as you heard in the intro, but today, as always, is never about me. It is always about the person I've brought it's it's a great it's a great day. I have I've always had a celebrity on here with every episode, but a particularly someone I've been watching for a long time got me in when I first got introduced to the Blades in the Darks and the Iron Swarns and all the Hullabaloo's. They are video producer and journalist, game designer. You've seen him on Dicebreaker. You've seen him on Eurogamer. You've seen him on Outside Xbox. You've seen him on Total War. The YouTube Twitch personality. Michael's Michael Wheels Wheelin. Hello. How's it going? Oh, the applause sound effects. You need to get yourself one of those soundboards, my friend. I have a, I have a Foley career in the making. <laughs> yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you very much for coming and invite me on. Invite you on. I mean, I'm humbled that you are here. I am humbled that you are here. Absolutely. I'm reeling, actually. I just spent probably the last 20 minutes gushing with Wheels on here wheels <laughs> for the folks at home who may not be aware of who you are would you just give a brief introduction of how you present yourself to the world yeah absolutely so i am wheels a lot of people hear that and think my name is will but it's it's wheels like on the bus which is basically <laughs> just short for my surname which is Whelan. so i am 
in general, I'm a video producer and, and a game designer. So I wear sort of two hats. Uh, on the video side, I am currently working as the head of video over at Dicebreaker.com, which is a very good website for the very nice people. Uh, we are sort of like a, a video game journalism site, but for board games instead. So we, we cover all kinds of tabletop RPGs, board game news, anything related with the hobbyist stuff like miniatures and painting and all that kind of thing. But the specific wing that I work on is on the YouTube channel on YouTube.com forward slash Dicebreaker, where we do actual plays and like reviews and podcasts and all that kind of stuff that Jeremy apparently has been watching, which is good to hear. Um, <laughs> But then when I get home and I, I take off my work hat and I put on my slightly more like bedazzled streamer slash game designer hat, um, I am just wheels. And on a couple of things in the background, so I've released two sort of very micro RPGs. So like one that's just like a, a two page kind of like comedy RPG about wizards called Wiznerds. One that is essentially like a, a solo journaling RPG that I wrote with my my friend Zoe, which is called Would You Search Through the Lonely Earth For Me? Which let me tell you, it, it's difficult to make URLs out of that bad boy. But, <laughs> but recently and very, very soon to be digitally released, I have been working on a game called The House Doesn't Always Win, which is the biggest solo project I've ever done. It is massive. I sent Jeremy a copy so he could have a little read-through, which is very exciting. So looking forward to hearing what he has to say about that. But that is, if you go onto wheelsrpgs.com, that's all one word, then you can find The House Doesn't Always Win, which is my massive project about risk and revolution. It's a playing card driven RPG about social change and like taking down the people that oppress you and just sort of like really idealistic <laughs> way of looking at how um, how social change happens and maybe being a little bit more action movie oriented than, than the real world actually is. But yeah, apart from that, I stream on Twitch as well. I, I, I do too many things, basically. You I'm do all the things. I'm always tired. I'm also on twitch.tv forward slash, oh look, it's wheels, where the I just, yeah, I do box standard Twitch stuff, but I also, you know, play live music and do like stupid things like we read out Skyrim books the other week just for, for the sake of it like for like we were on an audible but yeah that's all there all wrapped in a weird cursed 90s tv show aesthetic <laughs> over on twitch.tv for slash Olicus wheels and that is all the things that I do sorry about that that's probably the longest intro we've had no I've definitely had longer so. <laughs> but all all in the best way I love it and it's worth noting all the important things that you do like you provide a lot of content and ideas for people out in the world. So claps, claps to, to you, Wheels. <laughs> As always, the sword is like an additional icebreaker to the show. I always like to see the steps that it took someone to enter their game design space, headspace, if you will. So what sort of was the first game that you played tabletop-wise? Could be a board game, could be an RPG, but what sort of like started started really having you consume the discipline? And then what game, maybe a hack, you wrote a hack for it or a supplement for something, or what game really opened up your game design spectrum? So I, so I, I come from like a relatively like big family so i'm i'm the youngest of four brothers so like yeah so my long suffering mum would <laughs> would like you know often give us like tabletop stuff to play with and i remember like being a young kid and playing like risk over christmas and stuff like that and just really loving the like atmosphere of that so it was always something that was kind of in the back of my head and like we'd play like very classic board games when I was with my family, but around like one Christmas, I think when I was at like university, my brother got me a copy of Carcassonne, which is like a classic like intro ball game. For those who don't know, it's like a sort of 
uh, tile laying. It almost looks like a big puzzle of like a medieval city, but you like grab points based on where you put your little meeples and stuff. And that kind of introduced me to tabletops as a whole. From there, it was like a rat that got into your food. <laughs> like, I just, just consumed everything I could see as fast as physically possible. And I've just been completely enamored of all tabletop stuff. As far as RPGs are concerned, though, I have been playing them since I was about 16, I think. I obviously started with D&D, which is what most people sort of, like, come into. Because, you know, when you're first being introduced to the hobby, like that's the only thing that exists right like what an, what's an rpg oh you mean dungeons and dragons got it so that was very much like my sort of first foray into that but i think without realizing it like i i was hungry for like the more indie rpg scene and that's where i sort of started creating things and i would just sort of you know like frustrated with how overly complicated that dnd seemed i would just sort of you know make my own little rpgs and i would sit on a google doc with my friends and just be like you know writing down skills and all that kind of stuff and and just hacking my way around it so i've kind of been like unofficially designing games since i was a teenager i never really saw myself as a game designer but just sort of like did it for fun and it was only when i got uh really sort of in depth in the industry and like i'm seeing how it all ticks and like being exposed to lots of things through dicebreaker that i was just like god like i've been doing this for so long like I i should really just put something in like photoshop and just shove it out there and just see what happens right which is when i was just like i've always had this idea where so the first first rpg i ever released publicly was not that long ago it was like a year or two ago uh it's called wiznerds it is like kind of a, a spoof of harry potter and none of the money goes to a turf when you buy it so that's good but it's a it's a game in which you like you have a very bog standard like d6 rolling system but you have in the middle of the group this big uh, word list split into three columns and they're all like gobbledygook magic words. So, you know, there's like, you know, like you would have like Alakazam or, or anything like that. They're, they're all just sort of either using the like default ones that are in the book or the GM will just write loads of nonsense words that don't mean anything. But unbeknownst to the players for the first time they play it, behind the scenes, the GM has like a translation list. So, like, one of those words might mean fire, and one of those words might mean, like, wave. One of those words might mean pointing and stuff like that. And the players at any point can combine one word from each of the three columns to make a spell, but they don't know what the spell does. (laughs) So the whole idea is that they are magic students who have been forced into saving the world, but it's literally their first day of magic school, so they haven't learned anything yet. They've just got this big book of magic words they don't understand. (laughs) So they read out a word and accidentally set their mate on fire, or they, you know, they... We had... I had one playthrough, and it was actually Zoe who, from Eurogamer, who I wrote the second RPG with. She cast a spell, and it's sort of like up up to interpretation for the GM. So it's like, if you cast three spells, you look at the three words, and then the GM just sort of like thinks, okay, that's what this spell probably looks like. It was something like immunity to being solid. And I was like, oh, you've, you've kind of, you've turned yourself into a ghost, but you don't have any way to propel yourself. So you're kind of just like sinking through the floor. And like, for some reason, she just couldn't figure out how to stop it. So she just spent most of the session just like being translucent and just <laughs> slipping through objects and just like just like laughing out of frustration quite a lot which is very very funny but yeah so that was like that was my first step into actually designing things and then i became enamored with all the incredible solo like journaling rpgs like gentleman bandit by alatan arth and the machine by adira and fen slattery and just wanted to make my own and it was with zoe and she like 
she her favorite song is the song where that lyric comes from that sort of inspired the title uh and it's written from the perspective of a treasure so like a treasure that's been buried in the earth and that is very like romanticized view of objects and stuff like that which kind of inspired the idea it's like what if instead of being a character that finds a magical necklace like what if you are that magical necklace and it gets passed between person to person after like over hundreds of years and it's like it's one of those kind of like deep time games where things will pass like between moments that are like decades apart and it's a very it's a very sort of like like romantic and poetic game like it's it's one where you can be really kind of fluid and and like writerly which is quite fun i think it's it's like it's a very sort of yeah i guess romantic is the word for it like it's it's a very like a soft and lovely way of viewing the world i think which is nice at the moment but in the background throughout all of that i had these two big rpg ideas there was one that would eventually become theodore there was also this one which is about it's about skeletons and like what it's like to be a skeleton <laughs> and what happens if your head falls off and all that kind of stupid <laughs> stuff but like yeah so like they just had these two ideas in the background and there was just a moment where i was i was sort of like um finally getting into uh building what would then eventually become the house does noise win and i was i think i was just playing it with some friends and they were just sort of like so positive about it i was like oh well i yeah i should do something with this you know like i'm sure they would tell me if it's rubbish right <laughs> like <laughs> i've got those kind of friends where like they're they're open and honest with me like they would tell me if they if it wasn't actually any good so i started writing it and with every page it just got a bit more ambitious and a bit more like oh what if I did this and then eventually I just s sat there and and just thought to myself should I crowdfund this like should I give this absolutely every chance that it could have and eventually I stopped finding reasons why I shouldn't and uh, a huge huge shout out to my dad who is credited in the front of the book who is an accountant and made sure that I didn't put myself in a position where I would bankrupt but yeah after that launched the campaign and that's where i am today that is my journey into game design um in a nutshell but yeah amazing one i also come from a very large family there was a point in my life where i was living in a house of three families of like totaling 18 people so i totally uh get the board game sort of every night situation especially when i was a kid so i i love that but the when you're talking about wizards i thought about this really interesting thing you did where you kind of created a decoding game right because they're playing like yeah. wizard students right so they don't know exactly what these spells do but they can learn right and i think mm. the reason i tap on that a little bit is when we get to talking about the house doesn't always win you have sort of these mechanics in there that have a layer of mastery to them like you can play the mm. game like fun fun willy gonzo and like not think about it but if you wanted to really like play with counting cards and realizing what's left in the deck and what your options are like that's also there so i find it interesting that both your first game and this iteration sort of have this subtle mastery level to it which is really interesting yeah so i think one one thing that i personally am a big proponent of is there is not enough crossover between board game design and rpg design because like 
<laughs> you're making <laughs> big like finally someone said it moments. Yeah, it's so weird because I've been in like three different conversations this because I'm a very like tactical RPG kind of person. Like yeah. I I like certain things that D&D does and I I definitely like other or I definitely don't like things that it kind of skims over like engaging role-playing mechanics and stuff like that. It's all very combat-focused. And I was literally just talking with someone the other day where, like, tactical R- tactically-based RPGs need to stop taking from war games and really analyze, like, the board game space. Yeah. We, were, we were talking about, like, uh, Devil May Cry Bloody Palace, that board game, and then we were also talking about the Dark Souls board game, which both execute those sort of requirements beautifully. So I, I just, like, I'm freaking out that you said it. <laughs> well, it's like... You know, I just, I see so many, like, so many board game designs where I'm just like, God, this would be a really interesting thing if, if it replaced, like, rolling a D20, you know? Or this would be a really interesting thing if it replaced how experience points worked or or something like that. And it, it's just, whenever I see a new RPG, I'm like, I could be quite cynical about it. And I'm sure there are things that I should have played where I haven't because I've, like, you know, scoffed or whatever, which is completely on me. And I, I'm the only one who's missing out, really. Uh, but but when, I, when I see a game and it's like, oh, I had this really wild idea, like I've got this crazy theme that nobody's thought of before and I think it's going to be really interesting and really cool. And I'm fully on board with it. I'm like, yeah, that theme's amazing. That world's amazing. Like, that idea behind it is amazing. But then they say... And it's based on fifth edition D anD D, or and like, and the rules are powered by the apocalypse. And it's like, oh, come on! Like, <laughs> because like, I'm I've, I I always say this like, there is not an RPG in the world where there isn't just a mechanic that could be married to it that makes it even better. Mm-hmm. And I'm way more interested in seeing a game that tries to do something new mechanically and then sees where the RPG like grows out of that Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. like whenever i'm designing something i'm always designing the mechanic first and then thinking what would be interesting to explore based on this Mm -hmm. so literally like thinking about theodore and where that came from i was sat there with a deck of playing cards just like thinking about things and thought oh what if like because you know it was very different at the start obviously as, as all things are what if you know this deck of cards was like a you know a, a group of people and like what if instead of rolling a die and you yourself the one person character does something what if you draw a card and suddenly that character comes out to help you know like the seven of clubs is a person and it comes out and it's good at this thing but bad at this thing so if he turns up and tries to fix a problem it depends on how good he is the problem's like solution to to be able to see how well he can do that and i started playing with that idea and i thought about you know what happens if you remove an entire suit from the deck and that became like okay the diamonds so like why are the diamonds out of the deck well the diamonds you know maybe are like sort of uh the antagonists maybe they're like you know they're the diamonds whereas everything else is just like a in like a heart or a club or something like that like mm-hmm. they're very ostentatious and and suddenly they became like oh what if they're like the sort of ruling class and then it became about revolutions and none of that it wasn't like i sat down and i said i want to write a game about revolutions mm-hmm. it's i sat down and i made a game and i realized it was about revolutions you know like it was it was it was already in the game i just had to find it if yeah. if, <laughs> if that doesn't sound too it super makes tarot sense reading to me. you know yeah but it's like there there's every single mechanic in the world that has been invented and will be invented, there is an RPG that could be made from it. And I think I will always be drawn to those games rather than ones that are 
always about theme with mechanics that don't necessarily match. Because I think about, like, I think one one RPG that was definitely, like, a really eye-opening thing for me and probably introduced me to, you know, like, RPGs that aren't the big ones that everyone's heard of is Ten Candles by... Which, yeah, like, as you can tell <laughs> by Jeremy's reaction, is, is a fantastic game. And it's, like, if you've not heard of it, it's a tragic horror RPG. And it has this really, really smart sort of like theatrical main mechanic, which is super easy to learn. I can teach you it right now. There are 10 candles in a circle in the middle of the room. And every time you fail a roll, so like the odds are massively in your favor at the start of the game. But every time you fail a roll, one of those candles goes out and you lose a die from your dice pool. So you start with 10 dice. A candle goes out, suddenly you've got nine. And failure becomes more of a thing. And like your time feels like it's running out and... Like, the game is played in pitch black, oh. only lit by candlelight. Oh. So as you're playing it, you know, the candles go out and, like, the room is getting darker and the atmosphere is more tense and oppressive uh, and you're more likely to fail with every single thing that you have to do. And there's one piece of shared information that no matter what setting you're playing in, no matter what characters you have, no matter what story you're trying to tell, there is one thing that's always true and it's that at the end of the game, all the characters will die. Mm-hmm. And it's it's tragic horror, right? And it's like, there are some people who just do not like that. They're yeah. like, you mean I can't win? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't <laughs> Which win is RPGs. A gen- a, yeah, it's like there was a genuine comment I had because I there's a similar game called, or, well, a, a similar idea, a game called Icarus, which is, I should say, like a friend of mine, Spencer Stark, wrote it. Although he wasn't my friend when I reviewed it. He became my friend after the review because like, I just had to, had to meet this guy because he was clearly uh, a genius. But yeah, I sort of wrote this review of like how much I love Icarus. It's fantastic, fantastic design about how like empires collapse and stuff like that and how like, civilizations fall away. And there, <laughs> there was just this guy in the comments who was just like, uh, it seems a bit stupid to have a game that you can't win. And I was like, oh, man. like <laughs> <laughs> I'm already like, passing out. Yeah, I know. It's just like, it feels like, and people can play games however they like. And if that's the kind of game that, that interests that both, then that's absolutely fine. But I, like, sh- you have to, at some point, try a game that isn't about winning. Like, it's mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. telling a story and doing something interesting and, like, experiencing a world together and all that kind of stuff or just don't that's, punch that's, down on something that like you don't enjoy you know what i mean yeah yeah no exactly that but that's youtube for you isn't it <laughs> but yeah so like 10 candles like the one thing that everyone knows is that they're all going to die at the end and it seems like a sort of when you first hear that like depending on your sort of outlook on things you might be like oh god that sounds depressing or like oh like what what's the point then like you know what do i do with my character but it is the most liberating thing I've ever mm. ever had, honestly. Because like knowing that your character has an ending and we're all just working towards it, knowing what that ending is, and like knowing the things that are going to be important to your character now. Because like your character's going to die, and if they've kind of got that in the back of their head in world as well, because like the setting of of Ten Candles is like super apocalyptic. Like everyone knows they're kind of screwed, right? Mm-hmm. So if they've got that in the back of their head, like what becomes important to that character now? It's suddenly, it's less like I want to level up and get a new skill. It's like, God, did I, you know, did I live a good life? Do do, do I want to try and do more good in the world? Or like, there's this other character in the group and, you know, maybe there's like a, a romantic bond forming or something like that. And it's like, is this a good idea? Should I get into a romance in a cursed world? Like, all of those questions become so much more interesting and so much more personal. And suddenly characters that are only defined by like four, like not even traits or, or like stats, but just sort of like ideas, 
you know maybe they're a struggling alcoholic with a with a like a, a real love for poetry and you know they ha- they have that vice but they also have like some really genuine lovely qualities to them and they're just someone who has struggled at points suddenly that character becomes so much more real so much more tangible and it's all just through real mechanical ideas like real tangible things that you can interact with in the game it's not just a thematic wrapper around rolling a d20 and hoping to get a number it's Mm -hmm. like everything in that game serves one purpose and that's to tell the exact specific story that Stephen was trying to tell and i think that is just such a wonderfully beautiful thing and it's like it's something that's that's so unique to rpgs in my mind especially ones that are designed by like a single person because they are just so all-encompassingly like pushing towards that same ideal that same like objective because you you know you like play like a massive triple a video game and you've got 400 different ideas and some of them are just sort of like in there because they feel like they have to be some of them are in there because one person on the team really likes them whereas the other didn't and you can see that kind of clash between the sort of like objectives that they all had, like the story they were trying to tell, the game they were trying to make. Whereas you've got these solo projects, you know, you look at something like Undertale, all, all written by one person, every single bit, the art, the music, the game design, the mechanics, the story, everything all by made, one by, made by one person, sorry. And it's like every single thing in that game just serves that one purpose of trying to still tell the story that that person was trying to tell. And when you write RPGs, like there's so many barriers that get taken down there's so much less technical knowledge that you need to have there's so much less like minimum requirements for you to release the game that you're trying to release so it's way more welcoming to someone to be like a solo designer and you can get you know like like i have done you can get other writers who you think would be good to to work on that you can get other artists but you can absolutely just put everything into it and just tell the story that you're trying to tell and i think it's almost, and I don't want to say it's a waste, <laughs> because like there is nothing that has been created by someone who loved what they're creating that isn't good, right? Mm-hmm. Be- for you know, it deserves to exist, all of it. Mm-hmm. But I do think that you know, if you're listening to this podcast and thinking I want to write a game, you should think about what you're trying to achieve that game, or like think about what small moment or small idea or small story that you want to convey to the person who ends up playing it, and just think is everything I'm putting in this game serving that purpose? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or is there something that is just sort of there to prop it up or is just sort of there to, you know, to sort of like give a bit of a driving force to something else in the story without actually really contributing to it and think, is that how you want the game to be? Or is that something to readdress and and think about how to change? You know? Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely... Who who said? I can't remember who told me about it, but Dira Slattery, who you mentioned earlier for The Machine, mm-hmm. and I've had on the podcast prior, she talks about how there are explicit and implicit mechanics, and explicit mechanics are everything that that is like rules or rolling dice yeah. or anything that's mechanically bound. And then implicit mechanics are the verbiage, the word choice that you use in the narrative to help distinguish your setting, but also informs the sort of story you're telling. And we talk about designing from mechanic first, right? Thinking of a theme and then thinking about how do the mechanics serve that. I find that so interesting to point out because there is definitely something for like the the common example I'll always use on the show is D&D, right? I think that D, D&D relies heavily 
on its implicit materials. So like setting, adventure books, whatever have mm. you to provide to help you provide a story at your table. I think that it's a game that doesn't like if you wiped away the words of the races or if you wiped away the words of the classes and just had like these strict mechanical things, they don't have you serve a a story. They just tell you how to operate the game. They have to tell you how to operate the machine, but they don't tell you where to go. And I think for me, I'm in agreement with you that there are way more powerful games, way more resonant games when you try to tie those things all together with how you engage the engine of the of the machine of the game and when you bring up 10 candles it's like you know when you think about the horror genre you can't tell someone to be scared you can't like insert Mm. a jump scare into your prose and then be like "Ooh, you're scared now like that's not gonna happen and i think what 10 candles does really well is it plays on the two big things of of horror is one is atmosphere you create a a dark lit space dimly lit the lights playing tricks on you as the candles flicker in the space right and then the other thing is time like those candles whether they're in your control or not are gonna go like they're not in your control Mm. they're going to go out at some point right and which by the way is one of my favorite things i've read in that rule book and I, i i don't think we touched on that but like so not only do you put out a candle when you when you fill a roll but if a candle just goes out, mm-hmm. you have essentially failed a roll. So not only have you got like the the drama of like, oh, it's getting darker, but you know, if you if you talk too vigorously, your breath might <laughs> blow out the one thing that's keeping your characters alive, and that immediately the entire room is just immediately tense. They're like, yeah. they are in the shoes of their character. Sorry to interrupt you, but I just no. absolutely love that. It's so um, good, and that, and that I think, yeah. that's exactly an example of something that is just it's built to create the atmosphere that it's trying to trying to push the people into whereas as you say with D&D like it's it's a game about dungeon crawling right Mm -hmm. and there are all these grandiose sort of like rappers of like go to town and and Mm. fall in love with someone and and buy uh, great treasures and form a guild and all this stuff and it's like they've added like little mechanical bits of like Mm -hmm. how you might do those things but then a lot of it is yeah as you say it's like it's implied there's no real mechanical like help for you to do that to Mm -hmm. to tell Mm -hmm. the stories Mm -hmm. yeah there's no all the heavy lifting is done by the players when it comes Mm. to the role play which i think adds to some of the fake versatility of the game and i think it's important as i move forward with this podcast i'm not trying to dunk on anyone that likes Mm. D 5e I think that it's a game like every other game. It's not for me, but I'm not here to punch you out if you like D&D. But it definitely doesn't help you role play. It just tells you whether you succeed or not at doing a thing, and then you make it up from there. There's no mechanics really in the game that help you delineate like exactly like you said, like how to build a guild. If you, if you start your own guild, right, or how to make a guild, what does a guild do? You know, you have to come mm. up with all that. Do your own personal historical research and then add all those things to the game or yeah, look up or someone else's like third-party supplement. Yeah, buy, buy a $30 supplement from Wizards or something, you know, that will give you some kind of help, but yeah. Yeah. But also just like, you know, like, as, as you said, like every game has its purpose and D&D mm-hmm. has a purpose. It's mm-hmm playing a fantasy hero who can fight goblins and level mm. up and, and get skills and like you know every everything in D&D is kind of in service to the combat mm-hmm. which is why I think sometimes you'll often find that like if you do want to have those 
non-combat encounters that are fun and and like silly and goofy and and interesting and like maybe quite tense and and quite fun to follow along with you need the players to really push outside of the restrictions that are all set and take things like a little bit you know like sort of like be a bit loose with the interpretations of how things are Mm -hmm. supposed to work and introduce new things that that just aren't really supported in the rule set which i think is why a lot of people who are invested in rpgs as a whole rather than sort of dungeon dragons on its own can get quite frustrated with with people who sort of like evangelize D. it's not like a sort of oh you're an idiot for playing D. it's like no, no no like if you want to play a dungeon crawl absolutely like and there's other games that will will do that as well in different ways but it's when you see like like a story from someone that's like oh we were playing D last night and like we didn't even do any fighting or anything we just got like really invested in these side characters and, it, and it, like it turned into like a dating sim or something it's like okay cool man but like there are RPGs that do that. Like, mm-hmm, if, mm-hmm. if that was what's interesting to you, if that's the thing that you come out of your session and you remember fondly, then you completely forget the four hours that you spent waiting for your turn in the initiative run <laughs> so that you can cast your one cantrip that you always cast and then move on with your life. Like, maybe stop doing those bits mm-hmm. and look at some of the RPGs that focus on storytelling and focus on, on you know, romance or focus on like stealth or focus on you know like interesting ways to cast magic or rituals or anything like that because all of those things are available in a way that is going to actually help you to tell those stories and when you've got that help let me tell you the stories get so much better mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you know you 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 think about and and like we we spoke about Blades in the Dark of the actual play series like a fantastic game John Harper's like a legend in the space he's like definitely someone who is always thinking of like making complete games like i said right like blades in the dark there is absolutely nothing in that game that doesn't serve the fantasy of being mm-hmm. like a sort of roguish character in a dark and gritty world and if you play like a rogue in D, like there are mechanical things to support you and stuff like that but like you can see the rules kind of creak where it's like how does stealth work in D&D? Mm-hmm. Well, you roll stealth and you either fail or you <laughs> succeed. And you might have a skill that helps you roll it. Or, you know, if you attack someone from stealth, you'll get a little bonus. But then outside of that, like it becomes a little bit shallow. It's just sort of like, oh, well, you know, uh, those stealth attacks, uh, they work better if someone's already fighting the the creature right so now okay now you're part of the combat and that makes more sense right because everyone's supposed to be just hitting things yeah so if someone's hitting things and you hit them then that's stealth and it's like not really (laughs) not really (laughs) yeah (laughs) but it's like with with blaze in the dark a game that is all about like being like a a huckster or a a charlatan or like you know a rogue or a cat burglar or, or anything like that everything is in service to that there's like special gear on your character that only you can have based on the kind of character that you are and it's not necessarily like you get plus two to stealth it's like hey this is a thing and this is what it does in the world you try and think of like why that's useful why that's good for you why that's going to serve what you want to do. Mm-hmm. So, like, for example, you might have a charm that wards away ghosts. You might have a mask that lets you see ghosts. And let me tell you, that's one of the more interesting <laughs> characters. You might have, like, a pet companion, and they might have, like, a special supernatural power. Like, they could have supernatural speed, or you could have a mind link with them. You know, what if you have a lynx that can, like, follow your commands from 40 meters away? How is that now more interesting 
in a stealth setting. Like, can you use them for yeah. distractions? Or should you use them for scouting? Like, all that kind of stuff. And then each character is... Because, like, Blades in the Dark is kind of like a game where you're all... You're all playing rogues, but kind of subclasses. Like, you've got the assassin, you've got the the person who you never see, like the shadow. You've got, like, the, the sniper who kills you from 400 meters away. You've, you've got, like, everything, right? And, like, when you look at the bare bones of those mechanics and you, you strip away all the setting and you just look at how does this mechanic work, everything's in service to that. So you can, mm-hmm. you can see bits where other RPGs have inspired it. So there's the clock system which I think is from Apocalypse World, which is essentially like you draw a circle, you cut it into segments, and then you can fill it up when things happen. So, you know, John Harper sees that idea and implements it into the game, but it's like suddenly it becomes like awareness meters and like how long until the guards find that body that you left somewhere. And suddenly it's that moment of like, I know that if we keep pushing this, eventually something's going to crack and that alarm state is going to trigger that we've all got in like a stealth video game where you've been playing <laughs> Metal Gear Solid and suddenly it's like, dun, dun, dun. You know, like it's... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get, like everyone knows that moment because that is like, you know, video games have been doing stealth for a long time and there's like a, a whole language on that. And John Harper makes no secret that that game is inspired by Dishonored, like which is a, a very, very popular stealth video game, which is very good and you should play it. And it's like everything that you, you strip if you strip away everything else that surrounds that mechanic and you look at it you're like oh no that that still makes sense yeah like, exactly yeah that still is delivering on the promise and you know maybe there'll be ones that don't make quite as much sense but then you combine it with one other and you're like oh i see you've like <laughs> you've completely reimagined how that works and and made it something different because it serves the narrative that you're trying to push exactly i i've I think we're kindred spirits in this space. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I don't want this to be... Uh, those are great tips. In fact, I think it's flip the head. This will be our TLDR tip that people could listen to first, which is great because let's try a new format <laughs> of the show. Why not? I've read the game. I will do a bad job at introducing it. Why don't you talk about what the house doesn't always win is about? Okay, so the tagline for the house doesn't always win is it's a game of risk and revolution. So, like, the imagery that I'm trying to draw upon and, like, the thing that I want you to think about is imagine you're in a world, and it won't be too difficult to imagine when I start describing it because it sounds an awful lot like ours, where there is a small group of people who control all the power and then there's everyone else who's left with nothing, right? Whether that is, you know, like, this is, this is a, a settingless RPG, so it's a system rather than, like, a, a world. So you could play that in, like, Les Mis-style revolutionary France, or you could play that as, you know, space truckers who are desperately trying to form a union and get rid of the horrible corporation that runs their, their toll booths or whatever. You could be members of some ancient family who only sort of like, you know, live amongst themselves and, and like everyone who joins the family never leaves again. And you want to be the head of that family. You know, sometimes you might be characters that don't actually have motives that are good you know maybe you're actually trying to take power for yourself and not give it to everyone else maybe you've seen people in power and think yeah i want that for myself maybe you're mobsters in the 1920s and you're like trying to be the next big family or something like that but that's like the central conflict you know you've got nothing they've got everything and you want to reverse that Mm -hmm. whether 
when you're in that position, you share out the wealth or whatever is up to you. But then the the sort of mechanics that feeds that and the way that you interact with that idea and the reason it's called The House Doesn't Always Win is because it's all about gambling and it's all about taking a risk on something that the odds are so low that it's going to happen, but you know that if you just give it a try and if it just all goes exactly how you want it to, like you could completely change your lives for, for the better and maybe everyone else's as well. So it's a game that draws on things like poker, 21 or blackjack on on like that idea of like pushing your luck and thinking if if i just keep going i know that the odds against me if i just draw that draw one, one card, more then, yeah then maybe this will be it and knowing that like you know that that idea that title the house doesn't always win like the phrase is the house always wins right but that's not always true right there are those one percent of people that win big and like just that hope that it could be you, you know? <laughs> that's that's everything in that system. So it's a game in which you play with a standard deck of playing cards. The as I said before, the diamonds get removed from the deck and they represent your antagonists. They're sort of they're called the diamonds in the book, but they could be CEOs of a mega company or, you know, an evil tyrant king or anything that sort of like fits the theme that you're in. And you're gonna go through three missions, which are I mean, kind of inspired by things like Dishonored, things like Hitman, where you've got like one target that you're trying to take down. They have their defenses set up. They're in their sort of like ideal location, or you've picked somewhere that, you know, you've got a unique opportunity and you're going to use a, a blend of all of your skills of like cunning and social stealth and real stealth and, you know, masterminding schemes and Rue Goldberg machines and whatever it takes <laughs> to get to that target and to deal with them in whatever way you see fit. So it's it's a game in which you're you're all sort of like collaboratively trying to solve this puzzle of how do you take down someone who's untouchable, right? And it's a game that can be completely non-violent if you like. Like you could spend your entire time just uh, communicating with people and trying to get to the right place and then finally like talking down the villain and making them see the error of their ways without throwing a single punch or shooting a single gun but equally it could be an absolute bloodbath it could, <laughs> you know it could, it could be a real hitman 3 where you don't care about any of the bonuses you are like just shooting down everyone you can find you get there and then you Get the guillotine out, like whatever it is that you see fit as as how to deal with with this sort of problem that you've been faced with, and it all collides in in these three grand sweeping missions where you're taking down the Jack, the Queen, and the King of Diamonds. And once you do that, if you manage to get all the way there without everything crumbling underneath you, how does the world now change now that you've done that? And and sort of like imagining the world that you've now put yourselves in, and that is the house doesn't always win in a nutshell. Like that's. Without going into any of the mechanical details, that is like the the central message that I'm trying to push, which hopefully, as we now talk about the mechanics, you will see. Yeah, I had an absolute ball reading through this book. The mechanics are very cool, detailed, but I mean that in the best of ways. Like, mm. th there's definitely a lot of things to consider, even with something as simple as drawing a card or keeping a hand of cards. Like, there's so many ways to execute on ide narrative ideas and. What I'm becoming more and more fascinated by as I as I meet more and more designers is, you know, my first game was D and D, and I'm used I'm used to thinking about, man, how can I get this campaign wrapped up in 12 months? You know, what I mean, mm, like yeah. that sort of concept. Whereas this, it's like 
three sessions and you you do a whole campaign and you even have blurbs in the book about how, hey, if your campaign failed or even if it succeeded, if you wanted to continue in this space that you created, you're more than welcome to roll up new characters and explore the sitting like years later, months later or whatever have yeah. you. Use the same characters and see if there aren't other versions of the diamonds like instead of being on the high rung maybe there's someone who's challenging you for power in the same space maybe one Mm. of your previous friends goes rogue and now you're sort of dealing with that right so it has it has this very versatile game length feel great for one shots great for short campaigns great for long campaigns if you really want to put the put the effort in there and it's also very setting agnostic as you put it in the book and I don't know if these are... I didn't get a chance to look at the Kickstarter page, but I don't know if these were stretch goals, but there are a, a bunch of beautiful adventures and settings in the back of the book provided by other freelance designers that tell a whole myriad of different stories, uh, which are very, very cool that you supplied that in the book. I think it's amazing. Yeah, so they, those were stretch goals. So they were all sort of like collaborators. I do want to give a massive shout out to Adiris Slattery, who you mentioned earlier, who... Like, I, I wanted to make sure there was a diverse cast in the book, and she had, like... She she is very much ingrained in the RPG world, where I feel like I'm still a beginner, so she knows all the people to talk to. So, yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, so, I like, feel it, the same way, yeah. yeah. it was great to have someone, because, like... And I was very much like... I know this sounds stupid, but... Because you talked about how, like, oh, you're having a celebrity moment or whatever. I'm, like, my heart's beating, like, 100 points a minute, because I'm talking about <laughs> myself. Like, whenever when I'm on video and I'm just someone from Dicebreaker or I'm giving an interview or whatever, like, it's it's wore off ducks back. Like, I've been doing video for so long, I, I barely even notice anymore. Like, I can stand in front of a thousand people in a room and talk about a video game and, like, barely even notice it. As soon as I'm, like, talking about something I care about and, like, something that's me, I'm like, oh, God, I'm so nervous. Like, <laughs> I don't, oh, I don't know what to talk about. So, like, the idea of reaching out to, to collaborate with people and, you know, even people who might not think they have a big following themselves like i i see and i think oh wow like they've made these incredible games and like you know you know maybe like they've only sold 100 copies but i just think they're really cool and and like if i reach out are they just gonna be like who the hell are you you know like so i had this kind of like dilemma where i was like oh god like i want to reach out to all these great creators and i want to make sure that like i'm reaching out to people from all different backgrounds because like especially with the kind of setting that this game has like if I if I wrote a game about social change and every single person who worked on it was like a white bloke, like I, I would not be happy with myself. You know what I mean? Like it's not. Mm-hmm. Well, whilst I think like everyone has a responsibility, like there's also I think there are there are people in the world where it's like it's way more important to them because it has to be, and like to deprive them of a chance to to be a voice on that would be like a, a really bad move on my part. Mm. So like Dira was absolutely massive in like pointing me in the right direction of people who would be like a great fit. And like, I'm really glad that she did because some of the like scenarios, like I, I don't know how many of them were, were in the book when you got the preview link and like <laughs> you got to read, but some of them are so cool. So cool. <laughs> They're so, so cool. good. I think there's like six back here. Yeah. So there, there's nine in total. Mm. So I wrote three of them and then there were, you know, like we didn't hit every single stretch goal. So there were other people mm-hmm. that could have got involved. But so to give you like a, a sort of sample, Zalavin Nelson Jr., who is absolutely hilarious. He is <laughs> the writer on games that are coming out recently, one of which is called An Airport for Aliens Currently Run by Dogs. <laughs> um, also Hypnospace Outlaw, which is a really great game. He's also writing on Skatebird and like lo- loads of really cool like really out there indie projects but he has written a scenario in which you take down santa claus which is genuinely the funniest thing like it's like 
you know, Santa Claus is a horrendous cannibal and is like fueled by dark magic and like all of the elves are in this horrible post-apocalyptic nightmare and you're trying to take him down and it's it's absolutely fantastic there's also so i've written like cyberpunk scenario and a, a medieval scenario and like a mobster scenario so like really sort of like flatline things but we've got a pirate scenario by spencer stark we've got like a gothic mansion scenario by zoe delahunty light we've got attacking and dethroning god by uh, Johnny Chiodini, we've got like weapons, like living weapons turning against their creator. Like so many amazing things that that like are in that book, all because of those fantastic creators. So, and again, a massive shout out to Adira to for pointing me into the into the, the right direction of those people because they've all written some really really cool stuff. And there's ones that I haven't mentioned yet, but I mean, go buy the book and, and see them yeah, for yourself, yeah. I guess. Exactly. <laughs> support, support. No, they're great and they're really eye opening to all the different ways you could push on the setting. I even like, as I was reading the book, I thought about different, I'm not a great like world builder to be perfectly honest. I mm-hmm. always let my players do that for me, but I think about all the different games with very like specific settings, or even I think I really am attracted to magic, the gatherings planes, like the different lore planes that yep. they make yeah, in yeah. those. And so I immediately was like, Oh, like who would, who would be my Jack? Who'd be my queen? Who'd be my King? What would be the hierarchy? Like, like it's all good. It's all great. Yeah, it's very like, and it's it's designed in a like a, I call it a zero prep game, and like obviously there's there's rules to learn, but like provided you know how the game works, you can sit down, create a character, and create a world completely from scratch and play it in like literally about half an hour and start playing. Like it is, it's built to be really robust with how much like you can create in such a short period of time because all the world can just be completely invented through play, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's there's no. There's no burden of like, okay, well, what, what, how does magic work in this world or, or anything like that? Because it's like, there's nothing, there's nothing in the rule set that is explicitly world building. It's all mm-hmm. built to work in literally any setting that you want. So you can just be like, okay, well, we all know this world, right? Like, we all know, I don't know, Lord of the Rings. We're in that world now. Bam. Mm-hmm. Like, immediately. Here's the three characters you're going after. Here's who you, you lot are. Done. You know, like, yeah, let's go. G- the King of Diamonds is Sauron. There you go. <laughs> done. <laughs> Easy. Like, <laughs> um, but yeah, like, so that that was something that was quite important to me. So, and, and I'll tell you, like, I've said that three times now. I don't know why that's become my new phrase, but I'll tell you, the writing of a game which has no setting is a really interesting challenge because you can't explicitly imply anything in the text. Like, mm-hmm. like just there was a real moment where like I didn't want to call it a revolution if if in every setting because like sometimes it's not, right? Like mm-hmm. in that mobster scenario that I've written, you're not forming a revolution, you're doing a hostile takeover, right? And it still works, but like there's still that idea of of you know, the people on the bottom taking over the people on the top. So, like, you know, just having language <laughs> that sort of is all-encompassing like that was also really different and, and difficult to, to work with. But I think we've done a an, a huge shout-out to the editor, Lauren, who has just completely, completely made that a uh, hundred times better than it ever would have been if I was just writing it myself. <laughs> but, yeah, I, that's something that's, like, you'll never read a chapter of the book and think... Oh well, how the hell does that work? What am I saying? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, and that—that that was an important part of it, I think. Well executed as well, for I'm for sure. Well, let's let's dive into some of like the ins. You know, we could talk about every mechanic in this game for the next four <laughs> hours, but I think we'll talk about some more like. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Inspirations for this thing and like what was your intent here, right? Some like designer footnotes, like director's yeah. commentary type stuff. But definitely go get the game. It is it is powerful. I, I I highly recommend it. I don't know if that means anything to anyone, but Jeremy, <laughs> tell him Jeremy sent you. Uh, but uh, yeah, so like, well, I guess like, should I give like a broad like overview of how the mechanics like work i guess in like a sort of five minute yeah like what do the suits that. mean you know the d10 yeah. that's in there let's let's talk about sort of the the, the setup you know when you're setting yes. the game up so you start with your deck of cards and your deck of cards is the most important thing in the entire game right mm. everything in that game is driven by that deck of cards you take the diamonds out those are your antagonists all of the number diamond cards they're kind of like weak points that the the diamonds have that you might be able to exploit right so you find out about some kind of dodgy trade deal that you know high-level diplomat has made that if it came out would be really dangerous for him. If you manage to get that info, that's a weak point, and suddenly that becomes like a, a powerful card in your deck, and you get to take that for yourself. But in the rest of the deck, of course, you've got the clubs, the hearts, and the spades, and this is kind of like the trichotomy of the <laughs> of the uh, the setting. So. Pardon me, everyone who isn't a diamond is in one of those uh, sort of like categories. And it's basically the way in which you interact with the world. So if you are a person who is quite brash and resistant and is good at like athletics and intimidation and fighting and like physical strength and all that kind of thing, you might be a club. 
Whereas if you're really sort of deductive or like good at sort of like social cues and empathy and manipulation and trying to read people and all that kind of thing, you might be a heart. And finally, if you're good at sort of like acrobatics and being sort of like life and and quite sort of like cool and calm and and like stealthy, exactly, Jeremy, just like yourself, <laughs> then then you might be a spade, you know? And like that is kind of like the way that a lot of the the game frames itself around because to do anything in the game instead of rolling a die like you with D uh, D so say I wanted to persuade someone to to drop their gun because I'm not a threat I might roll persuasion and in D D and in a lot of games that sort of like well that you know the way that you break down that action happens in about five seconds you pick up a d20 you roll it and you either get the number that you need or you don't and that for me, always feels a little bit like anticlimactic mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, because it's mm-hmm. always like a, a binary yes or no. Some RPGs have come in and, and added like levels of, its, of success instead. So, for example, like Apocalypse World, which I talked about earlier, is a really popular one. Suddenly, you know, a six or lower is a fail and a 10 or higher is a success. But what about seven to nine? Well, that's like a partial success. So, you know, that's got complications. And that makes it a little bit more interesting. But for me, like... Every time you've ever done something in your life, it's never been a case of I did it, I did it with complication or I didn't do it, right? It's mm. been like, you know, let's say that I'm trying to persuade someone, you know, there was that that one sentence that I said that really resonated with them, but then I tried a different tactic and suddenly they were like, "Oh, shut the hell up." And I, I lost my footing and then there was that moment where you know, like I looked to my side and I realized that my friend was readying to grab their gun and I just sort of like calmed them down and that broke the tension in the room and all, all that kind of stuff i'm talking as if i've ever been in a gunpoint <laughs> situation i've not uh, but you know like when, when i think about how you describe the things that are happening after someone rolls that die like the mechanics never really seem to map with that mm-hmm. so the way it works in this game instead you've got your target number that you're trying to get but instead of rolling a die or drawing a card and looking at the result instead you're trying to match the suit to a number of times so let's say that you're you know we're in the same scenario there's someone with a, a gun held at you, they're about to shoot, and you're trying to talk them down. And I say, okay, that is going to be a hearts three challenge, which means that you need to draw three hearts for that to succeed. So the way that that works is you've got your deck, it's all shuffled up, it's full of all the clubs, spades, and, and hearts in, in, in a standard deck of cards, so you've got like 13 of each, and you draw a card, and you see what it is. So first one might be a heart, fantastic. You draw another card, okay, that's a spade. So that doesn't match, so not great, but you keep drawing and, okay, you've got another club, you've got another spade. Uh, And the binary is, if you manage to get all three, you've succeeded. If you happen to draw four cards that don't match the suit before you do the number that you're trying to get the do, you failed. The in-between and that sort of like partial success that people talk about is already implicit in the cards because Mm -hmm. sometimes you might have a challenge where you draw three hearts in a row, bang, did it. Like, that is a very easy thing to describe. You're like, oh, you've just, like, completely... Whatever it is that you said, it must have resonated with them because they... It's like they started holding their hands up. Like, you could just completely reverse the situation. Whereas if you had, like, a a really desperate moment where you drew three spades in a row and you're like, oh, God, I haven't got a single heart, and then all of a sudden you pull out the bag and you get the three hearts in a row, that's a very different situation, right? That suddenly the GM can look at that and think 
oh, okay, right. So you were really going down the wrong path. And he was literally about to squeeze the trigger, but then you said one word and it just caught him, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. caught him by the ear. And it was like, there was that moment where it was like, okay, maybe I shouldn't do this. Like, you know, you triggered his empathy. The final thing and the most important thing in the game, the thing that makes it what it is, is you have a like a third option whenever you're drawing. So there's failure, there's success, but there's not just partial success, but folding. And this is, so imagine you've just rolled your d20 and it's spinning on the table, right? <laughs> and it's it's one of those moments where you're like, oh, you're in agony because you can't see yeah. the number, but it's it won't land. But what if there was a moment there where you could just be like, no, I pull out. I haven't seen the number yet. I I, I stop. I stop the action. Mm. Uh, and that's kind of how the fold works. So let's say that you're in that previous scenario. You know, you've drawn one of the hearts that you need, but you've drawn like three spades. And you know the next card you draw will either mean that you fail or, you know, you haven't succeeded, but you're two out of three. And you're like, God, that's bad odds. That's a moment where you can fold. And folding is is essentially like, it's like a tantalizing thing that's always in the back of your head. And it's like, oh God, like it's not worth failing because the, the penalties of failure are, are pretty harsh. So there's always that, you're always weighing up that decision as you move. So like every single sentence that you say to that guard who's about to pull the trigger, you're just like, do I just pull out here? Because I might make him even more annoyed. Like I might uh, get myself in an even worse situation. Hell, he might even shoot me. And that is a thing that like, you know, that have you got the guts to pull through the thing that you're trying to do? That is something that occurs in any kind of tense situation for any person, right? You know, if you're you're trying to scale a building and you're halfway up and you get that classic movie moment where a bit of rock and you like pulls away from the building and you've got like one hand and you're looking down at the drop, you know, most people will in that situation in a film push on, but you've got the question yourself like, what happens if I do fall? You know, mm-hmm. like <laughs> maybe I should just get back down again. Maybe we should look at another path. And the reason that folding is so important is because if you fail in this game, every single card that you drew is taken out of the game for the rest of the session. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you drew three spades and then drew a club and you didn't get any of the hearts you needed, suddenly your odds of drawing a spade or a club in, like, God, what's the word? In challenges that are about to come up, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> in, uh, in challenges to come have permanently dropped because, like, the, the, the odds of the deck suddenly... One, you don't know them anymore. It mm-hmm. was a third. Now it's you know, like you have to make a complicated maths equation every time you draw a card, <laughs> which like the, the idea is that you're not supposed to, although I'm sure some people will. I um, absolutely will. <laughs> <laughs> but also it's just that idea of like, oh God, like now we have to change our tactics because mm-hmm. what was a, a one in third chance of doing anything is now like, you know, a sort of, a one half chance of talking to people but only a a quarter chance of being able to beat people up or sneak past Mm -hmm. them right so Mm -hmm. suddenly like if you've got a characters full of of punchers and and stealthers then you're you're screwed right suddenly you're gonna have to start putting on your social graces so you have to like the the odds are forever changing in ways that you can never truly understand but you have an idea of how they're changing right You've seen how many hearts you've already drawn and how many in the discard pile, so you know that you're running out of attempts to use that. Pardon me, you've seen all of the cards that you've taken out of the game, so you know that there are implicitly like cards that are just not going to come up again until you start the next session. So that is always like a like an equation that you're that you're pulling, and it makes those actions 
to me anyway, and, and to the players that I've played with, and, and I hope to the people who pick up the game, it makes those actions as tense in real life as they are in the game. And that is the the big thing for me. Like, it is full of those moments of, like, difficult decisions made in split seconds, elongated into these long, like, anime fight scenes where mm. it's like, you know, they've, they've only thrown three punches, but it's got 30 minutes of screen time. Yeah. Like, it's... <laughs> <laughs> but every it's punch matters. Yeah, it's like, God, do I draw that extra card? Do I? And one thing that... The, and this is the, the final mechanic that I'll talk just to give you an idea of how it works, like on a base level like this is if you stripped out all of the you know like the playbooks and all that kind of stuff like this is like the core of the system and this is a system that you can you can use for your games as well like there's a there's a whole web page that i've set up if like if you want to make your own games it's called members of the house if you want to make a game that's not powered by the apocalypse but is a member of the house go ahead and this is like the core that you need to understand every character that you play in the game is represented by a card in the deck Mm -hmm. so if I want to be like uh, a person who is always pushing their luck and like is just sort of hoping for the best and going in blind and stuff, I might play a Jack because that's the kind of playbook that's good for that. And if I want to be like a, a stealthy character or like a, a character who's really acrobatic and really good at scaling things, then I might be a spade. So I play the Jack of Spades. That is my character. Nobody else is the Jack of Spades. And if the Jack of Spades goes, like nobody else can be the Jack of Spades for the rest of the campaign Mm -hmm. because if you draw that card as part of your run of cards then two things will happen like one either or either you were trying to find spades and congratulations you've critically succeeded because you know drawing a picture card of the same suit is a crit or you've drawn it when you were actually looking for one of the other suits. So that you're trying to draw clubs but you accidentally drew the jack of spades. Now that's sitting there. And remember what I said if you fail, all those cards are gone. So they all get taken out, which means that, you know, originally when I first wrote the game, it's been slightly rejigged so that you've got a few more chances, but that character's dead. <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> because mm-hmm. those are the stakes, right? If, you, if your Jack is, like, part of the group and they're sort of, like, stood next to you as you're trying to talk down this gunman and you fail and you see the gunman, like, raise the gun just about to take a shot and the the jack of spades dodges in front of you to try and stop the shot and bam just like that they're gone like yep. they take the bullet that is the uh, at all times that is the level of risk that your characters are in they're always just one failure away from being exposed being attacked being like completely uh, thrown off guard or put in a terrible situation like there's there's always that chance there's something really bad can happen and that hangs over you throughout the game. And that's the kind of oppressive atmosphere that the diamonds have created in this kind of society that you're playing in. And that's why the mechanics enforce that. So it's like you are always weighing up with every single card that you draw from the deck. You're always weighing up. Okay, so we need to succeed at this challenge. However, there's a lot of hearts in here and we're running out of heart cards. What happens if we run out of all the heart cards? We'll never be able to do a heart challenge for the rest of this mission. My friend's character is currently on the line. If I screw up this challenge, they're going to take damage. So, you know, like, as it's been reworked, you can take three hits, essentially. But every time you take a hit, your character gets permanently worsened. So, like, one of your stats is permanently worsened for the rest of the game. Will I maybe even draw a character card with the last card of the game? What happens if you fail but the card that you drew was one of the character cards and like without even knowing it, you've damaged someone without even weighing it up. But then there's always, and this is my favorite part of the game. There is always that moment where it seems impossible and someone goes, 
But what if we did try, though? (laughs) (laughs) And there is just this elation where, and I'll I'll tell you one example, for example. Someone is trying to take down one of their targets, right? And they're trying to convince them to join their side. And, like, they're on their last legs. And this is is a a real story from Playtest, that we're playing the mobster scenario. They've got this sort of, like, Jack of Diamonds character who's, like maybe a little bit disillusioned with the rest of the the diamonds and you think maybe you could sway them onto your side and sort of like have a have a bit of a turncoat in them and you've drawn three like spades and clubs when you're trying to draw hearts and everything's going terrible and because it's a really difficult challenge you need to draw four hearts and everyone around the table is oh god we're screwed (laughs) and like everyone's looking at the person doing the challenge they're like you're gonna fold right and they're like I've got a hunch. <laughs> you know that feeling? I'm here you know for feeling? it. I've just got this hunch. And let me let me tell you, they drew their own character cards, the Jack of Hearts, and like critically succeeded at a challenge. If you crit with your own character as well, there's like an extra level of critical success, which is great. It's affectionately called the Mega Crit, but it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a critical crit. triumph in the book. But just the whole like the whole room just erupted into cheers and when that happens in a game you've written i wanted to cry with happiness like it, it was just like one of the best moments i've ever had and it's it's just that's the the kind of like stakes i want you to feel whenever you do something right it's not just well i hope this die roll goes good you know you were in charge of every single decision every time you drew one of those cards and if it came out on top you feel like the king of the world and if you screw it up <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> and everyone else is going to be looking at you because remember, you're sharing that deck of cards because you've worsened everyone's odds, not just your own. Yeah, it's it's a game that, like, it's taken a lot of tweaking to get it exactly where I want it. And as you said, there's like there's a lot of stuff in the book which was not there at all at the start when it was first being designed. Like, it, originally it was just sort of that kind of can you draw enough of the card of that suit? But all those things are just there to heighten those draws right so like every single rule that i've added in they're all working towards making every single time you do an action just be really exciting and like really tense and giving you loads of ways that you can play with the odds and keeping it really casino so like for example the king one of the playbooks he can cheat so you know if you succeed he grabs one of those cards and puts it in his hand and he can play it later and you know like what's that you're desperate for hearts well i've got one up my sleeve you know that's a really fun thing and just like playing with the odds and you know the jack is able to just fail less often like they are just really lucky like they they get to draw five cards before they fail instead of four you know like Mm -hmm. there's there's loads of little things like that where it's you know the the abilities are just as mechanically interesting as they are sort of like character focused so Loads of stuff like that. I think this was supposed to be me describing how the game works in five minutes, but I went on a rant there. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's so good. I'm so here for it. No, the, the playbooks scream a lot of character in a lot of different ways, and they're easily colored by the type of suit that you sort of aim to emulate, right? Because you put a lot of nice prompting into the style of the suit in choice between clubs being physical, hearts being social, and spades being clandestine in some manner clandestine mm. is that the word so clandestine i think clandestine i don't know, I don't know if that's different like from america's the uk so <laughs> you might, so, you might say that wrong. to someone in the u.s and people would be like what the hell are you talking about <laughs> um but those also inform a type of character playing and just to sort of like circle back onto how the draw pile is managed narratively i think is amazing because 
I think I feel similarly to you that there are, you know, I'm attracted to partial success systems. So success has the, excuse me, margin of success systems is what the real, real term is. And then I've been really like, I don't love pass fail because there's always a middle ground. There's always nuance to whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I love that the draw pile can sort of paint a story for you, right? So if it's a hearts challenge, you're trying to talk this person down. Maybe one of the failure cards is a club, right? There's easily a, like, if you really want to dive into the role play of that and not just like shovel out the challenge cards until you find Mm. out whether you pass or fail, you could easily be like, okay, here's a hearts. We're having a conversation. He's really starting to let down his guard, but you throw up a clubs and he was reminded why he has the gun at you in the first place. Maybe like pistol whips the hostage or something like that. Right. Like that sort of story can be told as cards are being revealed as well, which is very Mm -hmm. fascinating to me and something I constantly think about when I think about margin of success systems, especially as I think more and more about using decks of cards as resolution mechanics. So that's all very amazing. If anything, anyone's listening that right there is a perfect reason to get this game. It's just the case study of how that narrative prompting is presented in the game. And then also the weight of the the real stakes in the stakes of like a game influenced by betting mechanics, right? Like saying like, oh, I think that I can get one more. I think that the next mm. one's going to be a heart, right? Like you're thinking like I could hit one more time. I'm, I'm at 14. I'm at 14. I could totally take another card here, right? You're pushing your luck in these instances. And there's while there's not a. There are some mechanics to talk about pushing your luck and putting that stuff out there. Like when we talk about the helping mechanics and preparing for success or failure, those are really cool as well. But without even like saying, you know, you you push you want to push your luck. There's not a mechanic mm. that says push your luck and do X. And maybe there there is on a playbook that I'm not remembering or something to that effect. But you're wanting to do that. You're you already have this intrinsicness with the themes of the game and the mechanics that are being presented that like I could do one more card. I think we could do one more card before I decide to fold or not here. I could push it, right? And I also love that the face cards are representative of the characters. The the picture cards, as you talk about them in the book, this being the king, queen, jack. And how the, when those are represented by your playbook, your personal character, it's that same thing. Like how in the previous, I was talking about like maybe the clubs represents that he's getting a little bit more hostile, Right the Jack of Spades comes up. You've now exposed a friend and it could be in any capacity in that narrative, right? It could be the friend who's right next to you that might take this bullet for you if things go bad, but it might also be like, maybe you expose the sniper who's like waiting to take the shot, but you accidentally like motion to your earpiece or something like that. Right now it's like, do you have someone watching me? And like that, the further failures, failures of those cards are presented a new narrative in that moment. It's just, it's very cool that there's all this abstraction of narrative and prompting that is present from something just as simple as looking at the river of cards before you and telling that story, which I think is very powerful. So total triumph to you at the end of the day. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, that's that's something that like it's one of my favorite things about it. Like, because there's there's a whole chapter called interpreting a fold, and it's mm-hmm. like, what what does it mean when when like you look at this run of cards and try and make sense of it? And something that like I I don't want to put in the book because I don't want to make people think that this is something that they need to do because it's actually a really difficult skill. But if you're a really talented GM, you can do that stuff in real time. 
Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, you draw a card and it's not one of the cards you need. And like you say, it's a club. Maybe you get a little bit aggressive mm-hmm. uh, and it, it does not work. Like, you can see him, like, you can see him, like, sort of putting his shoulders up and getting a little bit, like, uh, affronted. Mm-hmm. So then maybe the next card that you draw is a club as well and suddenly he starts returning that energy and he's like oh what you think you're bigger than me like you think you can intimidate me like Mm -hmm. don't you see i'm holding the weapon then Mm -hmm. suddenly you draw that heart and you're just like okay well how does you know now you've succeeded after that tense moment what does that mean Mm -hmm. maybe it's okay like you know after you sort of like you slink back with your tail in your legs it calms him down because it puts him back in power and like because he's Mm -hmm. in control he doesn't feel threatened and like all that kind of thing so whilst you can go back and you can sort of you can tell that story in reverse and that's kind of like the way that it's meant to be played because it gives you a lot more options as well because you can you can kind of write yourself in a hole if you if you do it dangerously but you know you can do that in real time and it, it it's like a it's like a tarot reading you know mm-hmm. like you 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 pull out the spread of cards and it intrinsically gives you the building blocks to tell a story without you having to completely imagine every single part of it and you can completely ignore it if you want like you know the gm is always like free to just tell the story however they like but you know they don't have to do every single bit of the heavy lifting you know there's there's a lot of talk in rpgs about oh if you're a gm and you're struggling like lean on your players because they're storytellers too and that's great but also like you know the game's supposed to tell a story too as well right so mm-hmm. you know like there there should be things in that system that give you prompts and and give you like ideas that you can build off of and they might not always be a hundred percent relevant and you can ignore them if you need to but like a lot of the time, because they've got that sort of abstract nature, it's a great inspiration for it. And it really sells like this tense moment. I always want challenges in, in Theodore to be like these big moments, right? You're not just, you know, you're not just trying to give someone a compliment. You know, giving someone a compliment is part of like this big action that you're trying to take. Like you are trying to convince someone to unlock a door for you, right? It's not just, hello, can you unlock the door for me? Yes. I say yes, uh, because I rolled a 15. I rolled a 25, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I say yes, so therefore, here's the door open. It's, you know, how do you approach them? Do you walk up slyly, or are you, like, looking nonchalant, like you're about to walk through the door anyway? And maybe Mm -hmm. they say, excuse me, sir, you know, this this door is actually uh, locked for a reason. What's your approach then? Do you then start saying, oh, actually, I'm supposed to be in here? If that fails, so they say, oh, there's a list. What tactic do you take then? And that could just be, like, 15 different dice rolls all in a row. (laughs) But not only do the odds then become like ridiculously against you, especially mm-hmm, with these 20 mm-hmm. systems. But also just like, you know, those individual sentences aren't the interesting bit unless they're part of like a, a grander action. So why not just combine them all into this big thing that's happening, you know? To talk about John Harper again, Aegon is like a really, really smart system. It's, you know, it's based on like Greek myth and you do all of your dice rolling in advance and then you tell the story because you, you look at the picture that the dice are telling. And it's like this person, you know, failed the action, whereas this person did well, but this person succeeded and also did better than everyone else. So you tell that story in reverse order where it's like my hero, like, you know, we're fighting a giant monster. My hero runs forth uh, and tries to swing it with a sword, but like the, the monster just sort of sweeps me away. And so then the next person takes over. It's like, OK, well, I come over to try and help you. And I sort of like grab my shield and, and block the blow. But it means that I can't fight. But then the next person who succeeded really well, it's like, well, cool. Now you've distracted the monster. My character does this like epic leap and, and you know, plants a spear in its head and, and we all triumph, you know, because that is just built there for you you've got the building blocks to tell that story in the moment and those are the interesting parts of the game so like you know let people revel in them that's what i always say 
there's a, there's definitely something to be said about examining resolution systems that have, that sort of teach you to play the game after the roll, not before the roll. Right. So like mm. the, I guess to elaborate on that is that when you think about D and D, you say, okay, I want to attack the orc with my great axe, right? Like you, yeah. you and everyone at the table has already imagined you as an adept fighter, right? Yep. To swing your axe and succeed at hitting this slow moving brute of an opponent and you roll the dice and you fail. And, you know, in some cases you might have a table that just whoop, you know, whoopee cushions the whole thing is like oh you slip on a banana peel or you know <laughs> you didn't read like the size of the room right or even in the more serious cases like oh he uh dodges or deflects you or something but like you're hefting a huge like the the thing i'm trying to point to is that when you roll after the fact after you've already had the narrative to find out whether you pass or fail i think there's this loss that happen like this this deflation that happens for people at the table where it's like mm. and I know the excitement comes from succeeding and getting those criticals and everything like that but I think there's this deflation that happens where it's like well or I guess not right like there's there's almost always that phrasing right like I I'm gonna hit the orc roll it oh I guess I don't hit the orc right like you mm. you had to backpedal on your on yeah. what you thought was gonna happen. Whereas if you do sort of your role first and see what you have available to you, right? And then you can say, okay, this is the story I want to spin with what I have. Like, think about the opposite. Think about if you rolled that D20 at the start of your turn before you did anything, even Mm -hmm. if, even if it was combat, like you're going to throw this great, great axe attack. You throw it's like, oh, that's going to be 11. Okay. So I was going to do my attack action or whatever, or maybe you can do something that causes you, it doesn't matter. But (laughs) you know, you see that 11, you're like, oh, I know that's not going to hit. So me having the player agency will say, okay, I swing my great axe in a big horizontal sweep. And I think he like brings down the great club, puts it in the ground and like forms this pillar that like just catches the great axe. Right. You, you aren't deflated. You created that negative moment for yourself or you had the potential to create that negative moment for yourself. Like, okay, I wanted to succeed. I didn't succeed. Or I know I'm not going to succeed. It's the same thing in 10 candles. You know, that you know what the outcome to, is before you, you start, right? And exactly. It's like, it gives you that platform then to be way more creative and, and way more like uh, part of the narrative that's actually forming rather than trying to retrofit yourself into it. And that that's exactly how the system works. It's exactly how Aegon works as well. Like, you know, like I, I was kind of already designing Theodore by the time that I played that for the first time. But when I played it, I was like, yes, love this. This is exactly the kind of stuff that I like. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's it's that that sort of pre like amble of of knowing what's about to come or at least having an idea of what's about to come which gives you that sort of like more tools and there's kind of like a binary there where like D's right on the opposite end of the scale where it's you have no idea what's going to happen but you you establish that something's happened and then you realize that actually no that's not what happened you failed yeah yeah which makes you feel like a, an idiot right <laughs> and it's like you know D is almost like a slapstick game sometimes in the path that you're like this ridiculously adept warrior who accidentally slipped on a banana peel like said like it's it feels like sort of a bit like dissonant with mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. the story that's supposed to be told because you're supposed to be this like level Epic 20 hero. barbarian warrior yeah, it's like yeah. how the hell did i miss a, a skeleton you know yeah um, exactly yeah yeah whereas then with Aegon, you've got like the exact opposite which is great with its own strengths because you've got like the the same system where it's like you're trying to do something you either succeed or fail, but you already know whether or not you succeeded or failed. So it, it becomes a storytelling game in that moment where mm. you know what you're trying to do. You just you just find the most interesting way of saying it. So 
Theodore, I think, sits in the middle where it's like you've got the narrative tools to tell you what's happening as the successes and fails are being like established. And you can see, like, pardon me, as you're drawing those cards, you can see how the odds are shifting against you. Mm-hmm. And you can, like, read, oh, God, this feels like it's going to be a failure, rather than just be like, oh, it's a fail. It's like, oh, God, no, this is slipping away from me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it's you like, feel the yeah, change. You feel the change, like, you can see the odds change. And, like, even if you don't see the numbers, like, you can, like, th- that's the thing about drawing cards. Like, you're like, ah, uh, like, you play a simple game, like, higher or lower. Uh, and you draw a five and you're like, oh, God, like that's yeah. right in the middle. Like, you know, you, you have that moment where you're like, oh, that is exactly what I didn't want to draw. And then yeah. that is where you have that crisis of of conscience of like, oh, God, is this am I making a bad decision here? But then suddenly, whether or not you fail or succeed, they both still feel tense and interesting mm-hmm. because you were prepared for failure. Mm-hmm. In fact, exactly. failure could have even been more likely. Mm-hmm. which even then in that sense makes success even more exciting because it's like against all odds you succeeded and like you saw how difficult it was for you to do this rather than having like a sort of vague idea of here's the number I need to hit. It was like, oh yeah, you drew three cards that did not go your way and then all of a sudden everything came up trumps, right? And that's way more interesting for someone even if they're like, you know, you let's say you're trying to draw like six hearts in some. You're, you're trying to shift like mountains. You, you're trying to uh, draw six clubs or something, and you draw three cards in a row that are terrible. But then you draw club after club after club, and you're like five out of six. But then you fail, and that yeah. moment is like it's not. Oh, you slipped! Like oh, something instantly happened. It's oh god, you were so close! Like you were, mm-hmm. you were literally, you know, you're trying to stab someone. You had the blade like nicking their skin. Like you can, you can see like that little tiny bit of crimson coming out of their cheek before they just push you aside. And like that is when you like, if you're reading a novel or watching a film or listening to a podcast, those are the moments that stick with you. Not that moment of like. I failed or I sort of succeeded or I succeeded. And like, yeah. that is, that's the most important thing to me about the system. Like the thing that I'm most proud of bringing out that sort of like elongated, high tense, high risk, high reward system of just seeing every single little microcosm of what makes up an action and what makes that action interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just knowing how much is at stake every time you draw one of those cards and just a little little quirky thing as well. One of my favorite sort of like moments of tension relief in that kind of system, because obviously that's like, there's a lot on people's shoulders when they're playing. Because it's not a dice, like, and this is a thing that I've, I spoke about in a different podcast, but like cards are a static thing. Mm-hmm. So like, if you draw a card and then you decide not to, let's say you fold it, right? And you're like, no, no, it's too rich for my blood. I'm going to fold. I'm going to take like a partial failure and, mm-hmm. and sort of like, you know, cut my losses. As soon as you draw the next card from the deck, you know whether or not you made the right decision. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah. like the next person takes a challenge and you see the heart you were looking for and you're like, oh no, I can't believe I followed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah or you, that's amazing. You, know, you, you see a character card that would have failed and killed the character. You're like, mm-hmm. oh God, I'm glad I folded. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> and you could, yeah, and again, like that challenge to challenge, as we were talking about with the sort of the narrative prompting that river of story, right? That even that example is like, you could still fold that in into the last thing you just folded, right? Or failure or success, right? Mm. Like at least like, you know, the GM could spin in like, Oh, and you, you pop up one of your teammates, the snipers face card, right? In the next challenge, like, 
at least you didn't let on that someone was watching him, right? Like that yeah. whole, like you could still add on to that whole thing. It's just, it's very cool how it, how it all connects together for sure. And there's also, I don't know if you've considered this, but I feel like there's an energy of, of like a solo version in here. Like I feel like there's yeah, some there's, sort of like solo play energy inside of this. There's definitely something that is something that I have thought about. I've had people ask me like, is this something I can play on my own? I'm like, it's not, it's definitely not as it stands, but like there mm-hmm. is absolutely something there and it might be something that I come back to. I <laughs> will probably like work on some other things and then come back to it, I think, rather than yeah. being like, okay, now we make it a solo game because I think yeah. I'll lose my mind. But yeah, it's, <laughs> it is, yeah, there's there's absolutely something there because it, it shares a lot of those, you know, like you can, I've, I've spoken about a lot of games and like I will, whilst I would love to make a ludography in the book and be like, these are all the games that directly inspired me, it's difficult to say, this is the exact thing. This is the exact yeah. thing. You know, like the the way that the suits work and how they're not necessarily like prescriptive. They're just descriptive. Like that comes from like lasers and feelings in the way that, you know, is this action lasers or feelings, which is like the, the central question of that game. Like whenever you do something, it's like, are you doing it with lasers? Like are you cold and calculated or are you doing it with feelings? Are you like rash and, and like working on instinct? That's how those suits work. So like, let's say that you want to, convince someone to do something you're like i want you to i keep talking about harsh challenges actually let's <laughs> let's say that you, you know you you want to you want to hack into a computer system right like are you doing it with like prior knowledge that you're drawing upon and like you know exactly the line of code that you need to write in that will break their systems apart are you doing it so that you don't leave a trace and like are you going in through like back passages so that like you're going into parts of the system that people didn't even really know existed are you just like brute forcing and like DDoSing the thing and just like <laughs> you're leaving your fingerprints all over it but like you're getting what you want like those are all different like ways of doing the same thing and like in order that was hearts spades and clubs right so mm-hmm. those those actions are just like in ladies and feelings they are like they are a feeling that you're having when you're doing that action not like if you are doing stealth, then you are doing a spade action. It's it's like you are, you know, it's the essence of, of spades rather than just like a, a list of things that you can do with it. Yeah, uh, they're more was, adjective than verb. Exactly, you're putting the verb exactly out there that, and you're yeah. saying like, I want to uh, engage with this martini glass stealthily, right? Like whatever yeah. that happens to be, but it's, it's, it's more a layer on top of rather than the instigator for the engagement. Yeah, hundred percent. Like you can you can imagine like, hey, I want I want to beat this person up. It's like, oh, okay, that's a club's action. It's like, well, you, like maybe like maybe mm-hmm. clubs would be the most like effective way of doing that. Like mm-hmm. I can sure you can you can pummel them into the ground with clubs, or like you can completely like wrestle them onto the floor. But you know maybe actually you go with spades and maybe you're doing more of a like swift and like you're you're hitting them with multiple hits and you're ducking and weaving and, yeah, yeah and all that kind of stuff or maybe you're doing it with with hearts where you're like you're reading you know it's that scene from the Sherlock Holmes film where mm-hmm. you you're seeing like every single at like angle and you're reading the mathematical like exact angle where if you punch him in the chin he'll get knocked out in one blow kind of thing where it's mm-hmm. you know everything can be done in so many different ways and and that was something that I wanted to make sure so that there's like a whole paragraph of like hey, don't don't think that this action can only be done by these people because, look, this can be tackled in so many different ways. And, yeah, there's loads of things like that. We try to make it super example-heavy and, and mm-hmm, just, like, mm-hmm. be very much giving people as, as much information as needed. But also, like, 
I think the the final book, and I'm, do you know what? I'm going to get the page number for you, like just to be just to be a hundred percent. I think it's only like hundred pages or something yeah. like that. Yeah, like it's super slimline. So like I don't because I know we've spoken about like how many different things there are in the book. Like mm-hmm. this is not a long read. Like we've we've tried to trim it down into the the like thinnest like mm-hmm. uh, lightest possible system we can. Like it's it's very beginner friendly as long as you've got an experienced GM with you. Like players will not. I don't think have uh, a problem sort of learning the rules. Like Mm-mm. you can teach people as you play. Like it's it's very much a system that draws on a lot of knowledge that a lot of people already have as well. So you know, mm-hmm. like not to scare people off with the the inside baseball we've been talking about. Yeah, yeah, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sixty batting average. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. There's. I mean, it it is in in the yeah like a hundred like a hundred pages here and. As I now understand the game, like if I were to run this, I don't think it's it's something you could definitely do as moving along. Like you could really just put the deck down, set the deck up, and then say, "Let's go, let's play." Yeah. Who do you want to be? Right? Like grab grab your face card and, and let's just rock and roll. And then it could really be in a. I think the real charm from the mastery of the game definitely comes from learning to flex on the adjectives that are the descriptive suits mm. right because i you know like you said initially you might someone who may be less uh verbose in role playing might think i always have to clubs as clubs right like you yeah. always have to engage in the fight with the fight but that's not necessarily true you could spin the story however you want i just declare what the challenge is right i might even say like oh you want to engage with this guy but you don't want to bring attention to yourself this is a spades challenge you know what mm-hmm. i mean like you're trying to not draw attention to you or him so they're like well, well wait well why would i do it that well because you don't want anyone to notice you do you want to have everyone notice you You can clubs it you know what i mean yeah. like that's the conversation yeah, that like, happens in that moment and it's like yeah sure you know like you can you can approach it from the suit that benefits you the most as well all the time, mm-hmm. right? It's like, oh, well, you know, if I'm a club's character, why don't I just do everything like a club's character would? And it's like, yeah, sure, you have the best modifier for clubs, but that doesn't mean that doing everything like a club is going to be the easiest way to do things. So, like, you know, trying to smooth talk, like, you know, Buckingham Palace guard who has trained his entire life to not look at anyone and never react is going to be way more difficult than it is to you know, to just sort of like slip something out of his pocket or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and like there are multiple ways to achieve certain objectives, but that doesn't mean that they're all equal. Doesn't mean that they're all as easy as each other. Doesn't mean that they're all going to be available. quite as forgiving as you fail, quite as available. Yeah. Like, like, I mean, if you, if you fail to charm someone, they might just scoff and walk away. If you fail to intimidate someone, you might get yourself in a fight, you know, mm-hmm. like they, they have very, very different implications. So there's, there's still definitely an, like an equation you have to do in your head of like, should I be doing clubs right now? I know it's the best suit for me, but like, should I? So like, I, yeah, if, you, if you're sitting here and thinking, oh, well, I'll just always do the same action. Like there's, there's definitely things that you need to consider. And like a mm-hmm. lot of that will be the GM, GM, of course. And like, that's why I, I would say that, GMing this game is not necessarily the easiest for a new player, but mm-hmm. for playing, absolutely, I, I think like it's it's definitely beginner friendly. And there's also like the availability is what I was really trying to point to because like I think I think pe- some people who might list be like, oh, so then why don't I just clubs all the time? Well, once you get into the rule more specifically of the game and learn that like some guards get taken out of the deck or there's the discard pile, right? Y- you could still abstractly or narratively position everything, fictionally position everything as like, oh, you don't have a lot of clubs in the 
in the decks. Like a fight, there's no fighting option at this party. Like you yeah. don't have it available to you. There's too much security around. You don't have the clubs cards in the deck. I know you want to engage clubs with clubs, but like it's not. It's just not possible. The deck says no, mm-hmm. and that's it's where yeah. it's tying back into what you're saying about how the game also has a story to tell, right? Like the yeah, GM exactly. is there, the players are there, and then the mechanics of the game are also helping to tell. Like. I think I think there's something really interesting or or sparking here to consider like the game also like in game design like game design moving forward in a modern space I think there's something to consider about the game also being a player and yeah, it is providing 100%. you yeah. questions and tools it's like it's like your co GM like consider the game mechanics as a co GM helping you delineate abstractive thought into a malleable thought space imagination yeah. space right yeah and and this is 100 a game that that tries to do that you know mm-hmm. like it's you know but for example the you know you talk about how cards can can leave that deck and leave you in a different position and how the odds around you can can change both in the world and, and in the mechanics like that that deck it's called the opportunity deck because it's mm-hmm. like it is an abstract representation of all the things that you need to go right for you suddenly dro- dropping away as cards get discarded and taken out the game and things. It's like, sure, you might have had equal opportunity to go in guns blazing or to try and smooth talk your way through this party at the start of the game, but things have changed since the game started. Like the odds have slipped into into a different space, and like if all of those clubs are gone, like. Maybe the fight's just not in you anymore. Mm-hmm. Maybe, like you said, like it's way too dangerous for you to be picking picking fights. There's too many guards. There's too many security systems. Maybe you know the they just outman you, outgun you, out outsmart you. Like maybe every time that you try to be intimidating, you you've just like you've just not got it. Like you've just not got the the social credibility to intimidate anyone here. Like you're walking up to people that are just like just not scared by you because you've used up that tactic especially if someone you know if you've been walking around trying to intimidate everyone you see suddenly people are going to see all those failures that you had and think mm, i'm not sure you're very intimidating actually yeah, you know yeah. so there's there are ways where you can interpret those odds as well and like you say and and just be like well okay so we've run out of hearts and until we reshuffle the deck we're not going to get any more so we've got a hiatus here where like playing as a heart just isn't going to work Mm-hmm. why is that what's happened yeah and the players can think about that just as much as the gm and they can be like oh god i can't like i can't use my hearts like i've been trying to use hearts this whole game but like i've used up all my opportunities like why is my character now having to do stuff that he's not as familiar with or as comfortable with like what's forcing them into that position why mm-hmm. is that interesting as a character and why do i want to play in that space and you also get the av- availability of the opposite too. Like, yeah. you're able to. There's just. I mean, obviously, I say that. I think everyone could figure out where I was going to go at that point. But I think what I really, the whole kit and caboodle of, of what I've been saying here, in in awe of this game, is that there is the house doesn't always win because you're constantly playing the odds and you're trying to play the odds in your favor, right? Like, there's additional mm-hmm. like slogan tagline here where like. This game is really effective at having you think about playing against the playing against and with the narrative in a lot of cool ways. And I, it executes on so many levels of complexity that I think like this is definitely something to be examined in the future for anyone. Like once the game is is released is what I mean. Like there's definitely no reason you shouldn't check out this game and really absorb what it has to say. I think that you and the team have done a splendid job in creating something very visceral in in a great way. 
No, oh, thank you very much. Yeah, no, and and as you say, big shout out to all the people I've been working with as well because, like, especially Lauren, Lauren McManaman, who worked on. I, I always say the name of this game wrong, so I'm just gonna <laughs> check what it's called. Uh, Good Society, the Jane mm, Austen mm. role playing game. I always call it High Society, which is the card game. But yeah, so Lauren worked on that. Lauren's worked on a few things. She is an incredibly good editor, and just like there have been so many times where she's read through a paragraph that I've I've tried to convey, and she's just asked me that one question that's just made me go, "Oh God, why have I never thought of that? Like, why <laughs> why have I never asked myself that question?" And it's like, yeah, I can't can't recommend working with her enough. Like, she's been absolutely fantastic. And like the visual side of the game, like Tom Hutchings is the 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 graphic designer who's you know worked on the cover and and has been like a sort of de facto kind of like art lead with me and just making sure everyone's like getting together. Like, it looks beautiful. It looks absolutely it's beautiful. So I good. Like, even if you just want something to put on your table, like, grab this thing. It, mm-hmm. looks, it looks so nice. Like, I'm so pleased with it. I can't wait to hold it in my hand. Like, I've never really made something physical that I can be like, whoa, this is mine. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting it printed. But, yeah, so massive shout-outs to all the people who worked on this game. Like, not don't don't let me take all the credit. I know, I know that it's, you know, I made the game, yes. I, I will be nice <laughs> to myself for one second. Yeah, okay, I did make the game, but, yeah. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely way better than it ever would have been if I wouldn't. So the last segment of this show, because you already did sort of the tip in the beginning, but it'll be trends wheels. So at some portion of the show, this being that portion, I ask if there are any trends that you've seen in your communities, your social media, whatever have you that you really like are moving the game design space forward. Maybe you want to point to a trend that's attractful that you think people should be uh, aware of or, or be cautious of. And if there are any trends within you that you want to speak into the ether to sort of start to culminate or snowball that you would like to see games explore more. I, yeah, I think to, to bring it all back to like the first thing that we talked about, like ball games and RPGs are a match made in heaven and nobody seems to be able to see that like uh, for what it is. And like, you, you know, you're doing yourself a disservice. So, for example, like there's a RPG system that's been going around for ages called Dread. Uh, mm-hmm, it's a great mm-hmm. game. If you've not heard of it, I can pitch you to it in like 10 seconds, okay? It's a horror game where instead of rolling dice to do things, you take a block out of a Jenga tower. Like, immediately think about all the narrative tension and physical tension that makes where your actual trembling hands might kill your character. Think about that. <laughs> there was an RPG that went around with the the Ennies, I think. I think it won an award, which is like a sort of... I, I, sorry, I don't know the designer or the name of the game, but it's a it's like a zombie apocalypse kind of game. And it uses hidden role mechanics from board games. So like it uses... There's like a, there's a board game called Who Goes There, which is like, you know, what the thing's based on, where every time you get like bitten or whatever you draw from like a deck of cards and every card but one is blank and the one that isn't blank means that you're infected and nobody around you in the group of rpg players that you're playing with knows if you're infected or not because it's that thing of like oh god i don't want them to know that i've been bitten because they might kill me so that's a really interesting thing and that really blows things open or sorry yeah sleep away also is using mm-hmm. like hidden role mechanics like everyone closes their eyes while someone beats the the monster for a bit there's so many cool things like I so I was literally like I think yesterday 
so I was on Twitter and I saw the most recent thing that Dira Slattery posted, which is about this sort of like amazing, like wacky, like car based apocalypse thing. Like it looks amazing. And there were three words that were in that tweet. I mean, two words even that got me so incredibly excited. And I think I may have misread it, which may make it less exciting than it should be, but maybe you should make this game at home. It, she described it as a Yahtzee hack. And like, imagine that, right? Imagine an RPG that's built on Yahtzee, right? Or, you know, I've been I've been toying with this idea ever since I got this tarot deck of like making an RPG where it's a roll and move. You know, like you're going around a, a bloody Monopoly mm, board mm, or something mm. and like depending on where you end up is is going to tell you what happens for like solo RPGs and stuff like that. There are just so many brilliant ideas that have either been around for decades or are being invented every single day in the in the board game space. And if you look at RPGs, like you look at some of the indie titles that are starting to take those on now and they just they're just so exciting like not everything has to be about prompts and dice you know like there are so many different ways that you can elicit storytelling from people through mechanics i hope that like i've made an interesting one that people will be into like that's definitely something that i wanted to to push when i was making that game and that is something that i'm just going to be doing with every game that i ever make you know like one thing that i've always said is if i'm making a game and it's not at least trying to innovate like i feel like i'm wasting my time making it almost and that's Hmm. like that's a personal thing that that i have it's not a thing that i think every single person should subscribe to because also like some people just make want to want to make things for fun like it doesn't have to change the world or anything but like i i always want to be innovating always want to try and make something that's new and that hasn't been tried before because otherwise i'll just go play like the game that's done it before by people who are probably more creative than talented than me, you know, like I'll, I'll just, I'll just go enjoy their work rather than like <laughs> old Muggins here doing it. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, there is definitely something like we've already said, something to be learned from board games. And I really think, you know, I think about games like Betrayal and the House on the Hill, that board game. I think about like social deduction games like Mafia or Werewolf or even Blood on the Clock Tower. It, those all have like subtle, role-playing mechanisms within them without being strictly like this is a role-playing game but you sort of are taking on a role there's like this very thin veil at least for the games that i've been exposed to there's this very thin veil of if someone were to just like pop the plastic and rip it open there could Mm. be this this very cool blending that could happen out of nowhere and it just takes someone to want to take that pointy bit and and do it you know. I mean, look, look we, we were talking about tactical RPGs earlier, right? I Have you, play, you ever played the Arkham Horror card game? No, but I've seen it several oh, times. I'm playing it with my partner at the moment. It's fantastic. Like, I've evangelized it all the time. Like, I've just been like, <laughs> play this game. It's so good. But, like, I've never gotten, like, one of the proper expansion campaigns and played all the way for it. We've mm-hmm. just started playing it. I'm having such a good time. And it does so many interesting things with, like the abstraction of like movement and stuff like that. And I look mm-hmm. at that game and I think you could make an incredible tactical RPG out of this, like j- the way that it uses card play and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, you know, we, we talked about miniatures games as well. Like most people just look at that and think, oh, okay, moving amounts of inches and doing a certain amount of damage with dice. That's yeah. not the most interesting thing that miniatures do. Like there's, yeah. there's, you know, there's a game called Malifaux, which uses like some of the card mechanics that I've been talking about where you can like, you could hold a hand of cards that are cheating. And it's like, you know, what if you go for your classic game of D&D and you're rolling a D20 every time, but three times throughout the entire campaign, 
you have a chance to turn it on its head and turn it into a crit success. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when do you deploy that nuclear missile? Like, when when do you think, <laughs> oh God, this is my one chance to use this? And if I run out, like, you know, I might end up regretting it. Like, that's a great decision to have and mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. held over your head throughout the whole game. Like, so many interesting things that you can that you can take from all kinds of other periods of game design and like go out there find them like see what interests mm-hmm. you steal the ideas like that's that's art great art is steal like that's the that's the phrase like because you know everyone is is like basing something off of something else that they like like that's what creatives do they they look at something that interests them and they're like oh i'd love to make a game about that yeah that's um, a great idea what if this yeah what if this like what if is the most powerful tool we have as game designers so like mm-hmm. look at something that excites you and think wow what if what if we did this but in a completely different space or a completely different genre think about how many games there are out there in the board game space that are trying to recreate the D experience yep and tell me that not a single one of them has ever had a good idea <laughs> like yeah. yeah like tell me that not a single one of them it's worth looking at and thinking oh actually if you added this into D, it actually would be really interesting to use mm-hmm. like just just go out there explore like think about stuff that really excites you Think about things that you've never thought about in an RPG context and think about what that would be like if you actually flipped it around because I I guarantee you, you like you'll find something exciting. Yeah, an excellent another case I just want to mention to add on the on the table of all these games is I've actually played Time Stories. I played a couple versions of Time yeah, Stories. Yeah, Time Stories is great. It's definitely like I think wholesale is an RPG board game i think it i think again it leans more heavily in the rpg spectrum of that board game yeah. play and still has like that that veil that it's almost just like not there but yeah i think it's also an excellent case study for a game that like focuses on the role play while instigating on board game mechanics using cards and rooms and the and they uh play mat and everything to that effect there's also a game called cobwebs by adam vass and mm-hmm. will yopes that also instigates a lot of like horror themes has you play on a board game but is also a role-playing hybrid so they are also looking at those sorts of spaces and trying to push on everything until something comes out <laughs> the other end of the creation machine yeah like i mean there's there's a game called i think it's called nyctophobia where Mm -hmm. like the players are blindfolded and they have to like feel their way around the board and stuff like that like imagine that in a horror setting like imagine uh, like you could do genuine jump scares because you're blindfolded you don't know what's going on and then you feel the gm touch your hand and you're like oh god like what's Ah! that you know there's there's so Ah. many things you can do with that or or like i think about time stories and i think about how like so time stories has this sort of like groundhog day like vibe Mm -hmm. to it where it's you go through the exact same thing over and over again trying to do the perfect version of it imagine that in an rpg space what if you're doing like your generic oh, hey, go to this bandit camp and kill the bandit leader or whatever. But you have to do it like over and over again and explore it in a different way. And like you've got that kind of roguelike element that you get from video mm-hmm. games and stuff like that. Like, what does a roguelike video game look like as a tabletop RPG? Like, everything that excites me the most in new RPGs that are, that are innovating, like, are ones that have looked outside of the space and thought, mm-hmm. wow, whatever that is that they're doing looks really interesting. I want to try it myself, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it in their medium. I'm going to do it in mine. Exactly. Hack things that aren't RPGs, basically. Like, go mm-hmm. out and find things that shouldn't work for RPG spaces, <laughs> but will, because you will make them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll figure it out. I believe in you. Great. Amazing. Perfect. This is such a good 
episode and I'm going to have to break it up into two parts, but it's worth every minute. (laughs) Wheels, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on Draw Your Dice. Thank you so much for being here for this last little bit. Why don't you again give us give a plug about who you are, what you do, where they can find all of your stuff. All these links that Wheels is about to share with us will be in the show notes down below for your access. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been an incredible couple of hours talking. Like, I, I honestly, it is 20 to 12 here, like, in, in the PM. And I could keep going oh. until, like, 2 in the morning if if, <laughs> I, if you let me. So if you want to find my games, go over to wheelsrpgs.com. So that's wheels like you would find on a bus, and then rpgs.com. If you put a forward slash T-H-D-A-W, so Theodore, on the end of that, you'll find the house doesn't always win. There is also, I will say, there is like a subsection of that page called Members of the House, which I briefly spoke about earlier, just like Forge in the Dark or Powered by the Apocalypse or anything like that. I want people to, like, if they like these mechanics, I want people to make games out of them. Like, I want to see what your creations are. There's a contact form where you can get in, co- in touch and I'll, I'll give you official permission to put my logo on it and all that kind of stuff. And there's even uh, a program where if you're a, a game designer from a marginalized background and you want to free copy of the game let me know i'll send it to you i want to see what you make of it so that's that's all my rpg stuff if you want to watch me be stupid on the internet go on over to twitch.tv for slash look at wheels where i do video games and of course nine to five monday to friday every single week of the of, of the foreseeable future i will be making content for dicebreaker.com where we talk about all sorts of of stuff like this we've got our own podcast as well i mean Jeremy, you should probably come on and guest. That would be really nice. Yeah, no, I see that. <laughs> uh, I, I will. Absolutely. Um, we do live streams. We do like painting streams where you can just sit with us and we'll paint miniatures together. And that's nice. We do let's plays. I do big lists of like, you know, games to recommend. So like the most recent one we did is, hey, you like digital card games like Hearthstone? Here are five games that are amazing, but aren't Hearthstone. Like, you know, try something different. Here's... You know, one of our most popular videos, Shock Horror, is 10 games that are RPGs but aren't Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, So there's all sorts of stuff like that. Like, if you're brand new to tabletop gaming in general, we have got all sorts of recommendations for you. And we are, like, built from the ground up to be the most accessible platform for people who are new to the games in the world, hopefully. Like, we have have tried to take every single step to be... if, If you were to never have heard of what the hell a board game or a tabletop rpg is and you wound up on dicebreaker.com you would feel like there was like an easy path for you to to get involved in the hobby and and understand what's going on like that's always been our message from day one if it feels like we're not doing that ping me an email and i will fix it (laughs) but yeah hit me up real Um, quick like (laughs) but yeah um thank you so much for having me on it's been it's been an absolute blast uh you can also you can find me on twitter as well cube wheelan k-u-b-e W-H-E-L-A-N. I should really format all of my things so that they're the same stuff. But yeah, I'm on Twitter doing stupid stuff as well and, and crap posting. There we go. We haven't sworn throughout the entire video, so so I should or podcast remember, I should probably keep it keep it stum. There you go. Thank you very much for having me, man. It's been a, it's been a such a good time. Thank you. Aw. Well, everyone, that brings us to the end of the show. I hope that you had a good time listening to Wheels because I absolutely did and learned a lot. So we will catch you next time. Say bye to the people, Wheels. See you later. Bye. Bye. All right, that's a wrap. You can really feel the love for gaming from Wheels. So pure. And I wish the best of luck to Wheels and all members of the team in the coming future. 
All the games we talked about today, along with all the links to get in touch with Wheels, as well as a link to the Kickstarter for Theodore, will be down below in the show notes for your access. If you like the show and found it helpful, send a tip my way by following the link tree in the show notes to my Kofi or Venmo profiles. Or, if you are unable to provide monetary support, you can provide support at no cost by sharing this with someone you thought of while listening to this episode and leaving a review. Both of these methods greatly impact the success of this show and lets me know that what I'm doing is beneficial to designers out there. If you want to be a part of the conversation or hang out with the alumni from the show like Wheels, you can also join the DYD House Discord server. Thanks for listening, and I will catch you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.